Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, I am joined by the newly appointed Editor-in-Chief and now co-host of From the Editor's Desk, Kyle Brasseur. Kyle and I talk about some of the articles from April and find out that the articles from March have carried over as well. We talk about some upcoming articles in May and conclude with Kyle talking about Compliance Week 2022. Sports, we talk Celtics, pay a tribute to John McClain, and are shocked to find out the Yankees have cheated. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which either have or will appear in Compliance Week, look at um, the Compliance Week 2022, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I am your co-host, Tom Fox. And joining me and his first time to sit in the podcast as the EIC of Compliance Week is Kyle Brasseur. I'm thrilled to uh, have him come in, uh, taking, filling some really big shoes set by his predecessor, Dave Leefort. Uh, so Kyle, with that, uh, could you tell us about your new role at Compliance Week? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, uh, you and I spoke uh, several months ago while I was sort of in the process of making the transition. So this is more of that first time where my shoes are kind of on the ground here. Um, so, you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, big shoes to fill with Dave, who thankfully is still at Compliance Week. He moved on to the managing director role. So, um, you know, great that we still have him sort of leading the effort. You know, everyone who knows Dave knows he's very passionate about this stuff. So uh, really great to have that type of person in the role he's in. Um, so for me, um, you know, it's it's more of just a step up in the responsibilities. I've been with Compliance Week since October 2018 when I joined as a digital editor. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been around for a little bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think that we do great that I'm excited to continue doing. And then there's a lot of stuff that I'm excited to try and, and, and sort of just see how different things go over. Um, you know, we we have a lot on the the map here for our our members within the next uh several years and it's going to be great to be a part of it so i'm looking forward to it uh it's it's uh a lot of fun and and we're we're very fortunate that we have uh, a readership base that is really passionate about the topic that we're writing about i was interviewing someone else this morning whose name i won't reveal but she said uh she was uh thrilled for you and your new position and really interested to see the direction and imprint you would put on compliance week, because really each editor has his own imprint, his own style and brings his own uh, set of strengths. And uh, there's a lot of excitement, I think within the greater compliance community uh, to see what, what you bring. So we're all looking forward to that. But before we get to maybe looking down the road a little bit, Kyle, I wanted to ask you what were uh, two or three of the top stories from your perspective in April on compliance in Compliance Week, either in a print or a digital version. Yeah, so uh, right now we're sort of lining up for our our, our summer print issue. So uh, we didn't have anything new print wise in April, but in terms of the month, I actually thought 
it was really boosted up by just how strong March was uh, from a compliance perspective. I mean, uh, you know, in the month of March, we had the SEC propose their climate related disclosure rule. Obviously, that's been very highly awaited uh, and, and was really kind of got a lot of attention. That came in late in the month. And then the SEC also proposed the rule regarding uh, cybersecurity disclosures and, and disclosing breach within four business days of when it happens. And, you know, those type of, of rule changes have significant ramifications for this profession because, you know, I, I think this is a, a popular sort of debate right now among compliance folks is should compliance be the one leading the charge, you know, in ESG or in the areas of cybersecurity. And at a lot of firms, really, honestly, it's not, there's not much of a choice, uh, you know, it, it's sometimes resources or whatever it may be. A lot of this tends to fall on the plate of the compliance officer. So, you know, when those type of proposals hit the wire, uh, it ends up having significant reverberations that tend to extend well beyond the 24 hour news cycle, you know, and especially when I think the SEC's climate rule is, I mean, hundreds of pages, it, it really takes a long time to get through it and to wrap your head around it. And, and really the full extent of what they're asking for uh, is it's a lot. So, you know, for, for April, we found a lot of the sort of follow-ups to those type of stories were, were very popular among our audience and, and you know, just in, of interest to us as well as people who are monitoring this profession. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of some new stuff that came along, uh, you know, a higher profile one was the GDPR fine against uh, Danske Bank. You know, uh, I think any time a large financial institution like that is, is penalized under a law, especially like the GDPR that still relatively is getting its legs under it, uh, it's, a, it's of a lot of interest. And I think that that was a really interesting case because Danska itself acknowledged that they were not going to be able to get in compliance with the GDPR in time. It just was too much of a lift. And so, you know, the, the fine was sort of, you can say you're not going to be there in time, but at the end of the day, if you're not there in time, you can still get in trouble for it. So, uh, you know, a lot of what's been going on in April, I think it's it's been a little bit of a, a quieter month. But I think March just made so many waves that it doesn't really feel like it's been too slow on our end. So uh, was there, uh, I think, you know, um, that I interviewed, had the opportunity to interview Allie Mc, McDevitt on her latest case study. And uh, it was, I think, uh, well, it was a great series. And uh, we posted the podcast in March. And uh, was there sort of continued conversation around that case study in April as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we published that case study. We started at the end of January and sort of transitioned it into to February from there. And then not long after, you had Russia invading Ukraine. And, and that really changed a lot in terms of the cybersecurity landscape. Um, you know, it, it put a lot of pressure on companies to say, okay, like we need to make sure our house is in order because, you know, a lot of these global crises as they play out now, they also play out in the cyber realm. Um, and we've seen a number of US regulators, even President Biden himself warning of these increased cyber risks. Um, so, you know, again, our, our case study is all about ransomware attacks and what these look like, what the implications of them are, and the best practices to do so as you confront them. And you know, now we're in a situation where there's a lot of firms that are bracing for the potential of these sort of things. So, um, you know, the, the case studies sort of taken on a whole new life just within a span of a month um, because the cybersecurity landscape has taken on a whole new life. Um, it's not too surprising. Obviously, there's a lot that's always going on in that space. Um, and, you know, there's always new risks. 
But um, that's why, you know, we, we work on these case studies and we do them in a way where the content is still evergreen and still can just do so much for a reader to learn and apply to their program. You know, I obviously a few years down the line, technology will shift significantly and then maybe it won't have the same staying power. But as of right now, I mean, the lessons learned from that case study are just as relevant, if not more so today. Um, so, you know, it, you hate that what caused it is, you know, some, some something along the lines of what's going on in Ukraine. But um, it just really is in, encouraging to see like a product that where we worked on and spent a lot of time on um, continue to have value and continue to sort of be in demand from our readers. So, Kyle, um, could we maybe turn now to uh, some teasers of stories that uh, you and the team are working on for May? And I want to leave Compliance Week 2020 too, as a separate conversation, but anything that interests you, excites you, or, or things that will really resonate with uh, your readership? Yeah, we got a few things in the works. Um, you know, one of the things, a little separate from Compliance Week 2022, is um, our Excellence in Compliance Awards will be announced in, in May. And so, you know, every year when we do that process, we, we work on profiling the winners and really trying to justify to our audience, you know, why we picked the individuals that we did and really share from them some of what their peers are doing to really stand out. So, um, you know, those winners will be announced in mid-May uh, and we're really looking forward to giving them the opportunity to be showcased on our website and, and you know, in a way to, again, just completely free of our paywall, just a way for compliance practitioners to really read what some of the leaders in their industry are doing to set themselves apart. Um, so that's exciting right now. Uh, we have two longer form reports that we're really excited about. One, I, I can't share any details on right now. It's, it's in the final stages. It should be coming out in May. We're really excited uh, to see how it comes. But another one that is, is expected to wrap up right before we uh, have our conference, uh, I, can, I can share a little bit of information on. We're doing a, not as in-depth as our usual case studies uh, by uh, our writer, Ali McDevitt, but our, our policy writer, Aaron Nicodemus, has been working on uh, a, a case study package with uh, uh, shipping company FedEx. So he's been working on discussing with them. They have been putting out uh, what they previously called global citizenship reports um, since 2008. And then last year they shifted it to ESG reports. Um, so, you know, in the light of the SEC's uh, climate related disclosure rule and just the current landscape regarding ESG um, you know, we really spoke and spent some time going through those reports. We spoke with FedEx about them to just offer a glimpse at what one company is doing to represent the pillars of um, environmental, social and governance at their organization uh, and has been doing for over a decade. You know, uh, we're really excited about being able to offer this to our members so they can have an idea as to, OK, this company's 10 years in. What have they learned from this? What are they um doing right? What do they do that maybe necessarily didn't go so well? Um, so, you know, that's a project that we've had in the works for a few months. Uh, it should be coming together. We're hoping to get it out right before our conference so we can talk about it there further. Uh, but, you know, it, definitely a lot of stuff coming up in May that we're really excited about, you know, especially as uh, things start to slow down, tends to always get a little bit slower in the summer months. So let's turn now to something that's going to put a big smile on both of our faces which is Compliance Week 2022. Yes. Uh, I've had a smile on my face for probably since December when Dave first uh, announced it. I knew you guys were obviously working on it, but it is the first 
full compliance conference that will be held since the pandemic. First compliance week conference Mm -hmm. uh, since 2019. Uh, I can't tell you the enthusiasm in the compliance community for compliance week 2022. And of course, all of us getting together and actually seeing each other. So with that introduction, could you tell us from your perspective, Kyle, what are some of the the highlights from uh, Compliance Week 2022 and things that you're really excited about either watching, leading, or participating in? Yeah, I mean, for starters, I'm, I'm just as thrilled to be able to see everybody again in person. Um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's such a different dynamic when you're there in person. We've been continuing to do our annual conference virtually in 2020 and 2021. But, you know, as, as much as uh, I, I give so much credit to our events team for being able to put it off in those conditions, it just lacked that that magic of that in-person can only provide. And I think anyone feels that way about any of these virtual conferences. Um, so we're so excited to be back in person. I'm so excited to be able to see people again. Um, you know, a lot of folks that I really made some good connections with when I attended our um, last in-person conference in 2019. Um, so, you know, that's definitely a huge highlight for me is just going to be, you know, a fly on the wall and, and, and be around and just touch base with a lot of familiar faces and friendly faces. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the agenda at this point, uh, while we're recording this, we're a couple of weeks out from the conference. So a lot of things are solidified. Um, you know, it, we have a lot of, um, I think what we tried to prioritize this year is a big, uh, regulatory presence. Um, and especially because it, we haven't done this in a few years. And so we haven't heard from some of these folks, but uh, we know we're only one year into a new presidential administration. And there's a lot of things that have changed and there's a lot of things that are going to continue to be changing. So, um, you know, a lot of the sessions that I'm excited for are uh, the keynotes we have lined up from regulators. Uh, one we added, I think about a month ago was um, Kenneth Polite, who's the head of the criminal division at the Department of Justice. Uh, I mean, personally, I'm super excited to see what uh, Kenneth has to say. You know, he was a former chief compliance officer himself. So, um, you know, I think that knowing he can come from that background and speak to our audience as a former CCO, uh, that's going to be huge. And, and we're really looking forward to that session. Uh, we also have Hester Pierce and Allison Heron-Lee, who are going to be speaking on a panel together. Uh, Allison Heron-Lee, she's uh, a couple months out from leaving the SEC, but... All the same, just going to be great to hear those uh, perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Um, and we also have a gentleman from uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control who will be speaking on a panel about you know, global sanctions, which I, I don't think there's a story that's more top of mind for compliance officers right now, given the current geopolitical situation. So a lot to be excited about. Um, but for me personally, I'm just excited to be there again and to just sort of absorb it all. Um, you know, I don't have, I, I'll be speaking on our, we usually have a, a panel at the end, you know, we're the Compliance Week editorial panel, and I'll be speaking as part of that panel. But for the most part, I'm hoping to just be attending sessions and just seeing what's going on. Uh, but I'm excited to learn. There's going to be a lot of uh, practitioners who are going to be speaking specifically about uh, elements of their program. You know, we have uh, Mia Rainey from Home Depot is going to be talking about how they've uh, realigned their internal codes to mimic the Department of Justice's uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So that's going to be a really informative session. Um, We have uh, Todd Hartman, who's the general counsel and chief risk officer at Best Buy. He's going to be doing a session on their diversity, equity, inclusion program, which has always drawn rave reviews. So a lot of experiences and and opportunities for 
practitioners in the audience to, again, learn directly from their peers um, and also just, again, just get to see their friends and everything like that. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, could you tell us again about the awards and what will be announced uh, from the Compliance Week award perspective? Yeah. So uh, this is our third year of doing the Excellence in Compliance Awards. Um, you know, we, we had really, really planned to, you know, make a big event out of it um, at the uh, the 2020 conference. But of course, with, with the pandemic, that threw things for a loop. So the last two years, we've always done them as part of our national conference, just uh, in, a, in a virtual format. You know, we, we would add videos of, of each of the winners and everything. So this year, you know, we're excited to be able to not acknowledge these uh, individuals in person. Um, we ended up cutting the the award total down. You know, in previous years, we've had um, more awards. But, uh, you know, with, with the challenges of, of hosting an in-person event in this current climate, uh, with the pandemic still very much a thing, uh, you know, we, we had to make it a little bit more manageable. So, again, the, the winners that will be announced will be for uh, Chief Compliance Officer and Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer of the Year, uh, Compliance Program of the Year, um, Lifetime Achievement in Compliance, uh, Rising Star in Compliance, and Compliance Mentor of the Year. So uh, really excited to be able to provide a platform to spotlight individuals in each of these categories. Um, and it's it's always something we look forward to. You know, it's a great way for us to just be able to tell stories from one compliance officer to, again, acknowledging our readers, another compliance officer. So, Kyle, now we turn to the real reason for this podcast, and that's to talk sports. And here, not only do you have big shoes to fill, but you have huge shoes to fill. I know. Because uh, Dave Lee Fort had been in sports for multiple years prior to coming on board with Compliance Week, but you were a sports reporter for multiple years. So I thought we might start off by uh, asking you to tell the audience about your sports writing and sports reporting career prior to you coming on board with Compliance Week. Yeah, so I got my start actually while I was still in college. Um, I was hired as an intern for ESPN Boston uh, by an individual named Dave Liefert. So uh, I guess Dave's been looking out for me for a while. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it started in 2013. I was uh, uh intern covering the Boston Red Sox and uh, you know, it just so happened that that was the year that they rebounded from being the worst team in the league to being the best team in the league and winning a World Series. So uh, I definitely peaked early. But, um, you know, from there, I spent a few years just doing Boston teams, uh, you know, the Red Sox, the the Bruins, Celtics, Patriots, and even some of the college teams. And then uh, I transitioned to working for um, ESPN.com for a few years, uh, doing a lot of work similar to what I uh, came in to do at Compliance Week, you know, user personalization. Uh, and really just building out website traffic and SEO and everything like that. Um, and then uh, I spent a few years, actually just just recently stopped um, freelancing for a wire service um, called Field Level Media. So through my work with Field Level Media, I was able to uh, actually continue covering some of the local teams. Uh, actually had a chance to attend the 2018 World Series uh, in person and the, I want to say it was the 2019 Stanley Cup Finals between the Bruins and the Blues. So uh, a lot of incredible opportunities that I've had in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, for a long time, Boston sports teams were not overly successful. Uh, so I know I've been extremely spoiled having had so much exposure to so many major games uh, in such a short amount of time. Uh, so 
you know, it's, it's something at this point I, I've shifted away from a little bit, you know, as I've started to, to kind of really dive full headfirst into the, the compliance news realm, but you got, you can't help but keep tabs on it, especially in Boston. I mean, it's always around. So, you know, it's, it's good to see a lot of the teams still doing well without me. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> so uh, Dave brought some dispassion to this part of our podcast, but, you know, he was basically a homer. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how big of a homer you are. And we're going to start with a homer topic, which is the NBA playoffs and uh, the Boston Celtics, who put on a great run, knocked out the preseason NBA favorites. And so I'm a huge fan of Bill Simmons. Uh, listened, followed him for years. And of course, he's the ultimate homer. Yeah, I was gonna uh, and he's taken a just a hugely deep dive into this version of the Celtics. But the thing that has struck me the most, and, and he's gone through every analytics possible, is it seems like they have developed a chemistry that was not present in prior years and even maybe the first two-thirds of the season. So I wanted to ask you really from an analytics perspective or a culture perspective, the team coming together perspective, is, is this team really special in your eyes? And do they have the opportunity to not only make perhaps the Eastern Conference finals, but actually go on uh, to the finals this year? Yeah, I don't think you can really um, underrepresent the significance of, of culture enough in sports. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really get too, too much exposure. And sometimes it sounds a little silly to talk about it. But, you know, when I saw that 2013 Red Sox team firsthand, you know, that was the year of the Boston Marathon bombing. And, and you could just tell how much it meant to each of those players to accomplish what they were accomplishing. I mean, that that team was one where everyone was looking out for the other guy. You know, they, they did the, the thing in the playoffs where they all grew out their beards. And I mean, like I said, it all sounds silly, but these type of things can really have a huge unifying element uh, for these star athletes. And I mean, I am no athlete myself. I certainly can't speak to that perspective, but as an outside observer, I think it does have a tremendous impact, you know? So I think for the Celtics this year, again, I, I've been following it a little bit passively, but you know, they, they shook things up at the trade deadline. A lot of teams, sort of, I mean, a lot of people sort of thought they were DOA at that point. Um, but those type of things can have a, a tremendous effect and, and really change the way things go. And now, you know, I think what we just saw against the Nets is um, just how much of, a, of an impact it had on the team defensively. I mean, they, they were probably just the, the best defensive team down the stretch. And what they were able to do in that series and, and shut down arguably the best player in the sport right now in Kevin Durant, um, you know, it goes to show just how significant those type of changes can play out on the court. Um, so, you know, as they continue to move ahead in the in the playoffs, you know, the old adage is that defense wins championships. So I have to imagine they have a good shot. But, yeah, like uh, I think basketball is always one of those sports where you can be very surprised. I don't think anyone expected the Lakers to be as bad as they were this year. I mean, I think a lot of people were excited to see how bad they were, some of us Boston folks especially. But, um, you know, anything can happen, but you have to really be really inspired by what you've seen uh, with the Celtics. And uh, if I'm another team, I'm certainly afraid of them. And I'm not saying that as a homer. I'm objective. But I don't know. It, it's, uh, it's tough to undersell sweeping that Brooklyn Nets team and with the, those talented stars that they have. So I have a new coach this year, but 
You have a player, Marcus Smart, who I think he's been in the league seven years, and this year becomes the defensive player of the year. And that didn't happen overnight. Um, but, the, you know, the question I have looking from far is, if he's that talented to win that, you know, why is it, why are we just finding that out now? And and Jalen Brown, who was a number three pick in the draft, I think, um, moves to the two guard and it opens up a whole new uh, way for him uh, to score and be effective on both ends of the court. And it, it just struck me that what might look to be and, and smart also moved to the one or the point guard. So what uh, struck me was these relatively minor changes by players who have some uh, seniority in the league now, and then it just comes together in a way we'd not seen before. And that's really what kind of led me to, to think it's something chemistry or culture wise is going on here really beyond the raw talent uh, that these guys have, have always had. Yeah. And a lot of it too, is also just opportunity. Um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about someone like Marcus Bart in particular, I think people around Boston have always known his defensive talent, but, he was not the the primary point guard. We had Kemba Walker, and, and that was our our primary person holding down that position. So, you know, once Marcus finally had the chance to really hold it down for a season with the team that he has around him, obviously, you know, uh, uh, with basketball, you only five players out there. If one person's a loose wheel, it takes the entire thing off. Um, so, with all the players he had around him, with other players growing defensively, you mentioned Jalen Brown. You know, we talk about Jason Tatum still continuing to grow on the wing. Um, that's what is able to really allow that player to take that step forward. But a lot of it is opportunity. It's, it's being given a chance to be put in that position and show the entire world just how good you are at it. Um, so, you know, that getting back to, to culture a little bit, I mean, you have to imagine just it only has a positive effect when everyone's just really meeting their potential and doing so in a way that no one's stepping over the other. And I think that that was some of the sort of talk around here anyway is that, this team is is it's heavy on its young stars, but you know there's sort of tough to tell who's the one that's going to be turned to when the game matters. And you know, we finally we saw in the first game of the Nets series, which is probably an all time classic game. You know, Marcus probably has a pretty good chance at a three, and he dishes it to Tatum in the paint. You know, that's that's the type of stuff that was not present on the Celtics team earlier this season. So, uh, you know, those type of changes that happen during the year. That's that's what uh, what gets you to the point where when the game's on the line, which it often is in the, the final seconds in the playoffs, you you know exactly what to do. So I'm going to change the focus a little bit because I've been saving this tribute up, and it's to a guy named John McClain. Uh, John McClain is a sports writer, well, uh, just retired as the lead columnist for the Houston Chronicle with 47 years in the business, and. The reason John McClain is so significant to me is I basically grew up with him. He is a couple of years older than me, but he cut his teeth in a way that I want, I'm going to ask you at the end is, is it still a way you can cut your teeth? And it was the following. He started doing uh, sports writing in sports journalism in high school when he covered his high school team. He was from a town called Waco, Texas. I um, also grew up in central Texas. So I was aware of him when I was in high school. Then he went to junior college. He did the same thing for his junior college team. Then he went to Baylor University at Waco and started covering the Baylor Bears. And that got him, or he got the attention of, who was then the preeminent football sports writer in Texas, a fellow named Dave Campbell. 
And Dave took him under his wing, hired him uh, in for the Waco Tribune uh, to be uh, the lead sports writer on football. Dave was the editor and uh, covered the Southwest Conference uh, as well. And from the Waco Tribune, he went to the Houston Chronicle where he covered the Oilers in the glory days of Love You Blue and Earl Campbell up through the 90s, where uh, we were previously the team uh, who had sustained uh, the greatest comeback loss against us, against the team ever in the NFL. Fortunately, uh, the Patriots did that to the Falcons and took us off number one. Uh, but he covered uh, all sports uh, for the Chronicle, uh, but he was known as the general uh, because he had a command of, of everything in football. He was a larger-than-life personality. He was on talk shows. He was on podcasts. He gave color commentary on the television. And he was a guy that that he could make a football score sing uh, the way he wrote. He was, he was that great of a writer. And he <clears throat> was really obviously one of my favorites. But I really wanted to ask, Kyle, is it still possible to kind of grow up that way, uh, recognizing we – Social media and other forms of journalism may uh, uh, be on print now, but can you kind of start out as, as the guy in high school who's interested in it and move up to uh, college and then move into a professional career? Or is, is that sort of ladder really uh, gone by the wayside because of social media and other avenues? And, and maybe Bill Simmons is a pretty good example of that. But uh, how would you assess or how would you maybe counsel or talk to someone who's 12, 13, 15, 17, and says, hey, I'd love to take a shot at sports writing. You know, Tom, I think you could argue in a way that now there's even more opportunity than there was at back in the time when uh, John was, was doing all the same stuff. You know, uh, I know for myself coming up, I newspapers are a little bit of a dying breed and everything like that. Um, I just did writing on a WordPress blog and that didn't cost me any money. And I mean, maybe 10 people were viewing it and nine views were for my mom and dad, just refreshing the page. But, um, you know, it's, it's so accessible now to be able to share your thoughts and share your takes. I mean, especially with social media and everything like that. And I mean, for the most part, you know, the social media doesn't quite have the, the same professional gravitas as, uh, you know, blog writing, newspaper writing or anything like that. But for a lot of people, it does. And, and for a lot of people, they've turned that into the platform in which they disseminate their thoughts and opinions, and they've made themselves very successful in doing so. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people uh, my age who I was coming up with in sport writing really do incredible things, leveraging social media and leveraging new tech and, and, and different forms of doing it. So, you know, there certainly is a lot of room for that still. Um, but that said, the competitions also increase now because, you know, as, as popular as major newspapers and major news outlets are, there are a lot of side outlets that will get a lot of attention uh, that, you know, people just uh, they're looking for a, a unique voice. And that unique voice might not be employed by the, the Boston Globe or an ESPN. They might be employed by a, a smaller operation. So, you know, the opportunity, I think, is is has increased tremendously, but so has the pressure and so has um, the competition. And, uh, you know, for an individual like uh, John McLean, I, I really can't express enough how much admiration I have for lifetime sports writers. That is not an easy job. It, it, it requires a lot of sacrifice. I mean, you talk about the amount of time they have to spend on the road, 
the amount of demanding days they work. That is not, that's not a nine to five job. I, I did it for a few years. It's, it's a hard job. And, um, you know, it, it really requires someone to go all in and especially to do it in that level for that long. Um, so you can only really have admiration for someone who does it. But I think there are a lot of young writers out there who really kind of romanticize the idea of, of sports writing. And I don't think as long as sports can continue to captivate uh, younger individuals, you're always going to have that. But, you know, I, I will say it's it's not easy and it requires a lot of persistence that, you know, I guess after five or six years of doing it or however long I did it, I decided it wasn't worth having anymore. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's demanding and any any sort of journalism is like that. You know, covering compliance is, is just as uh, daunting as as anything. I mean, this is a this is a profession that has really kind of just come onto the scene here in the last two decades or so. And I mean, look how much it's evolved in that time and it continues to evolve. So any of these sort of things, it, it takes a lot and it takes uh, a lot of determination. So I think the opportunities are still there. You just got to have the right mindset for it and you really got to have the appetite for it. And if you're passionate about it, it'll, it'll always come together. I mean, it's a lot of it's just also being in the right place at the right time, just like everything else in this world. So we're going to end with a story I was shocked, just shocked to read. And that's that the New York Yankees cheated. Gasp. Shocked. Yeah. Absolutely shocked. And, but what, even being more simply shocked than shocked uh, that they cheated, I was intrigued by their response was, well, you know, they only fined us $100,000. So how bad could it have been? So I wanted to get your thoughts on the evil empire, how shocked you were, and is this ever going to go away in baseball? Well, Tom, you and I are coming at this from the other parties sort of involved in this, where the Red Sox were also caught for cheating, and so were the Houston Astros. And so these three teams and these three areas are all lumped together in this larger baseball cheating conversation. Uh, you know, I, in terms of the going away, I don't see it going away anytime soon. You know, I, I think the teams are always looking for an edge and, you know, whether it's the more um, correct way to do it that we, you know, see dramatized in the picture money ball, or, or if it's kind of these shady things that are happening behind the scenes, there's always going to be someone that's looking to, to take advantage of it. But, um, you know, with this one, it just, it just seems silly when you actually read the details of it, you know, the, the watches and the, the you know sneaking and the, we have a person running from the video room and everything like that. It just sounds like a really bad like heist movie or something like that, where there's just kind of some zany plot going on to in order to get this. And at the end of the day, I mean, oftentimes the result isn't there. You know, some of the, these teams they're not winning the World Series by using these techniques. So you know, it's, it's a shame to see it because these these athletes are tremendously talented, and you hate for something like this to take it that. Um, attention off these individuals who are working hard in these roles and everything like that. So I don't think it's going away, but I truly wish it would because, you know, it would be nice to truly just see someone and just take everything at face value and to say, this person worked hard to get here and it's, it is awesome to see it. Um, and, you know, that's why, again, I only know so much myself and, and everything like that. It's just always encouraging to see, uh, you know, these longtime players like, Aaron Donald in the NFL win a Super Bowl last year like he did with the Rams or anything like that. These people who are very dominant, seemingly at face value, play the game right and everything like that. Uh, it's just nice to see them rewarded for doing it right, especially when a lot of people aren't doing it right. 
which is a shame. Well, Kyle, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering uh, before we leave uh, if our listeners wanted any more information on Compliance Week or Compliance Week 2022, where would be the best place for them to go? Yeah, I mean, our, our website, I mean, we're always updating our website daily, just like any other news outlet. So complianceweek.com is, is always going to be the best place to go to for any information. Um, you know, all of our events, our, our CPE webcast, everything like that are incredibly easily accessible on that website. But I also encourage anyone to reach out to me directly. Uh, you know, my email is just my first name, uh, .brasser, my last name, at, at complianceweek.com. And, uh, you know, for me, I, in the position that I'm in, uh, I learned so much from our our readership. You know, they, these are the people who are actually doing the job. So uh, I always welcome whether it's feedback, positive, negative, or anything like that. And especially, you know, ideas. What do you want to see? Um, you know, that's that's another thing that I'm really looking forward to at our, our conference in a couple of weeks. Here is, hey, you know, I I want to hear exactly what's top of mind for everyone else around me, so I can translate that into our coverage. Uh, so we 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 serve a very specific audience, and we learn so much from that audience. So. Uh, you know, anyone that's ever looking for more information about Compliance Week, uh, I really welcome the opportunity to be able to, to speak to you about it. Well, Kyle, uh, first of all, again, welcome on board to uh, from the editor's desk. And I think we had a very successful first episode. And I look forward to continuing this conversation uh, towards the end of next month. That's great, Tom. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to it. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, from the Editor's Test with my new co-host, Kyle Bersur. We're going to link to Compliance Week 2022 information and the registration discount in the show notes. I really hope that you will join us for this first full compliance conference since the pandemic started. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be great to see everybody, and I know you will enjoy it. I hope you'll join Kyle and I again next month for another edition of From the Editor's Desk. From the Editor's Desk is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.